Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 78, The Golden Age of Communes. In the last episode, we had a look at the situation, in particular in the communes, in the 13th century, and talked about the clash between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, and saw the legend of how this confrontation between factions started up in Florence. Violence was always an aspect of communal life, despite the fact that the 1200s can be considered the golden age of the communes. Violence was such an integral part of everyday life that it was quite common to have meetings about murder. The popular Italian historian Alessandro Barbero, and if you can manage a bit of Italian, I really recommend you look up some of his talks, tells the interesting story of a city in which the communal authorities were at odds with the bishop of the city and actually held a meeting to decide if it was worth killing said bishop. When it came time to vote on it, one man stood up and said that he had no real objection to the killing of a bishop, but since he had been asked to vote on it and he was related to the bishop, he did not feel he could vote in favour of the murder. To their credit, the authorities voted against the murder and it did not happen. Keeping this sort of situation in mind, let's have a closer look at some of the elements that made our period a golden age. First of all, there was population growth. Now, numbers are never easy in medieval history, but historians Ilaria Taddei and Franco Franceschi have done a really meticulous job of trying to reconstruct some of the data on population in Italy, and I greatly appreciate it. The estimate is that in the year 1000, the entire population of the Italian peninsula stood at around 5.2 million. 150 years later, in 1150, it saw an increase of 40% to around 7.3 million. Finally, at the end of our 13th century, in the year 1300, the population reached around 12.5 million, an increase of 70%. Obviously, of all those numbers, you only really need remember that the population grew quite a bit over 300 years. The interesting figure, however, is the population of Italy at the end of the 13th century compared to the rest of Europe. Indeed, Italy made up 18% of the total European population, which means that almost one in five people alive in Europe in this part of the Middle Ages lived in Italy. Now, we've mentioned before that the unfair advantage had come from the number of cities that had already been founded by the Romans. Of the large cities that were around at the time we're talking about, only seven had been founded after the fall of the Western Empire, i.e. Venice, Ferrara, Alessandria, L'Aquila, Viterbo, Macerata and Cortona. In this period, many cities reached the important number of 100,000 inhabitants. 
things would change in the 14th century due to various factors that also included the arrival of the Great Plague that swept through all of Europe. But for now, the population was booming. Among the cities we mentioned was our old friend Venice, which really profited from the results of the Fourth Crusade in 1205, in which the crusading armies had taken Constantinople and created a kingdom in the east. This was a great push for Venice in its rivalry with the hated Genovese, and Venetian dominance lasted until the reconquest of Constantinople by the Byzantines in 1261. However, the pragmatic Venice soon created good relations with the new emperor and by the 1270s was on the rise again and towards the end of the century signed a truce with Genoa. This truce was also due to the fact that Genoa had its own issues with Pisa, not so much on the mainland but regarding the islands of Corsica, where Genoa had its sphere of influence, and Sardinia, where Pisa did, starting from their bases in the south in Cagliari. At this time, the island was still divided into the four judicati, judgedoms, you might say, of Torres, Gallura, Arborea and Calari. But the influence of powers such as that of Aragon, Pisa and Genoa was growing. The two Italian cities clashed at the Battle of Melora in 1284, in which Pisa was sorely defeated, but managed to maintain its hold on the island. If Pisa was a thorn in the side of Genoa, then the other Tuscan towns, such as Lucca and Florence, were a thorn in the side of Pisa. Indeed, the power and wealth of the maritime republics grew thanks to trade, but so did that of the internal cities that acted as hubs for the goods coming in from the ports. Cities on the crucial Via Franchigena, the road that led from Italy to France, such as Lucca, Piacenza and Asti, greatly benefited from their position. As trade increased, merchants looked beyond traditional routes to the east, and indeed it was in the later part of the 13th century, from 1277 to 1295, that we have the famous voyages of Marco Polo, or Marco Polo, if you will, whom we'll talk about more in depth. The increase in trade meant that you could buy English wool in all of Tuscany and oil from Puglia in the markets of London. While trade fairs and important markets all over the continent, such as in Champagne, were full of spices, metals and fabrics from everywhere. Circulation also meant movement of people. For example, in a Parisian document in 1295, the Livre du Tal, the writer estimated that there were around 150 Lombards, the name that at the time was used for Italians, who actually lived in Paris. The fact that the information regarded people actually living abroad is an indication of all of the services that flourished around trade, such as finance. For example, if you were a merchant and you were on your way from Italy up to the markets of France, you would set off with your horse and wagons and very often with a good number of armed men to protect you. That is because you could face all kinds of problems on the way, starting with bandits who would be after your gold.
The way to avoid this was to not carry gold at all. But then how could you buy the goods to bring back on your return journey? Well, simple. Before leaving, you went to Giovanni in your town and gave him, for example, a thousand florins. Giovanni would take your money and give you a sealed signed letter for his cousin Enzo, who lived in Paris. Upon arrival there, Enzo would take your letter and give you around 950 florins to spend as you liked at the market. The missing sum being, of course, the pavement for said service. This actually promoted complaints from local observers who spoke of these Italians roaming around with no money, just paper and a pen. When it came to financial services, the commune with very few rivals was that of Florence. An indication of the city's wealth and power was the importance of the currency we mentioned above, the florin. This was a coin that was first minted in 1252, made of 23 karat gold and weighing 3.53 grams. Now I'm sure you don't care about that. It's just to allow you to understand that this then became a basic form of currency that was also imitated by other cities. For example, Genova then minted a coin very similar to the florin. The florin very quickly became a coin that you could find not only all over Florence, nor Tuscany, nor even Italy, but it was recognised and used in many places in Europe as well. As well as banking, this was a time in which insurance also took hold. Imagine you were a merchant. There you are, standing on the dock, watching anxiously as your ship, filled with fabrics, left the port heading out. Would it be set upon by pirates? Would a storm hit it? Would the sailors be killed off by disease and the ship abandoned? At this point, along came a smooth-talking guy that said, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. He offers to actually give you back all of the money you put into not only the ship, but also the goods and any cash you may have had on board. All you had to do was sign over 10% of any profit that you made if the ship did make it back. The profits from trade were so lucrative that the insurer didn't really need an incredibly high rate of successful voyages to actually make a profit. Along with banking and insurance, the increase in trade also brought improvements in bookkeeping, commercial documents and letters and everything connected to the buying, selling and shipping of goods. Along with these improvements came also technical improvements, such as hydraulic technologies for powering windmills to grind grain, chestnuts and so on, and to power sawmills. Crafts saw a high level of specialisation, and that brings us all the way around back to the issue of the rising merchant, craftsmen and professional classes in the cities that started to gradually occupy positions of power, as the consular communes of the origins, as we have seen, became popular communes, to the point that in some cases, some administrations started to pass laws to keep nobles out of said administration. Another issue of contention between the rising classes and the landed nobles was outside of the city walls into the contado, 
the surrounding farm area that produced the essential food source for the cities. These areas had traditionally been under the influence of feudal lords, but as the communes continued to expand out into the Contado, many nobles resisted, but many also managed to see the writing on the wall and accepted workaround situations that was sort of win-win for everyone. The communes, who were swimming in cash in this period, would offer to buy the lands of the nobles. Then, the communes would allow said nobles to manage said lands as vassals, no longer of emperors or kings, but as vassals of the commune. In this way, the noble landowner still held on to their lands and the communes were guaranteed sustenance without actually having to manage the lands. If an emperor or other higher authority did come by, it was usually enough to shower them with gifts, money and promises and then get back to business as usual when they had gone and forget the promises. For once, even the peasants managed to catch a break because many laws were passed that freed them from serfdom as many migrated to expanding cities. This raised the issue of citizenship because in these times of sort of proto-not-quite-democracy, citizens had a big say in local administration. And you could not have any Tommaso, Riccardo or Enrico come in and have a say. So, if you could buy a house or serve in the militia, you could become a citizen, a chives. If you couldn't, you were just a simple, boring old habitatores, an inhabitant. Speaking of military service, it was a requirement of male citizens, and since we are no longer talking about the noble knights who were basically put on a horse as soon as they could walk, highly specialised infantries characterised the cities. We saw, for example, how the Milanese and Brescian infantry, in particular, had managed to resist the onslaught of Frederick Barbarossa's cavalry in the previous century at the Battle of Legnano. However, you couldn't really fight a battle without the increased mobility of the cavalry, so the most wealthy citizens were required to provide the upkeep for a horse to also create a communal cavalry. This, in turn, led to great improvement of the fiscal system because you not only needed to know who the wealthier citizens were, but you also needed a good system to get the taxes out of them. However, citizens tended to understand the needs of the commune and even took great pride in their city and had a great sense of belonging. Next time, we'll finally get back to some more linear chronological progression and see how one commune in particular really had something to blow their own trumpet about. They had managed to capture a king. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony G, Brandon S, Tilaine, Daniel, Dean V, Eric W, Gordon Z, Greg, Ignazio, Caitlin, Kevin, Marxist Leninist Sicilian, Reactionary Venetian, Roberta D, Rodney N, Scott L, Shelby, and Stephen, and now the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri level, which has some new members who have moved up, and thank you very much for that, 
that is Sen, Paolo, Lisa K, who are joined by JW and Andrew M. Thank you very, very much, and welcome, welcome, welcome to new Patreon supporter, Jeffrey. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Remember, if you want to get in touch, say hello, ask a question, make a comment, complain, express some existential angst, or whatever you like. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. The same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com. You can click through to our social media, have a look at timelines and maps, or if you're feeling really generous, you can click through to our support page where you can support us on PayPal or become a patron on Patreon, where you can find additional content. Once again, thanks to everyone for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. All right there, you seem a little bit worried, Gov. Well, a bit. I have a ship full of goods leaving. That's nothing to worry about. I'm sure a clever-looking gentleman like yourself knows all about insurance. Like what now? Insurance. It's a new thing now. Everybody's doing it. Well, what is it? Well, you're worried about losing your ship and your goods, right? Yes. Well, what I can do is if anything happens to your ship and your goods, I'll pay back all the money you put into it. Oh well, that's very nice of you. What a nice thing. All you have to do is sign over a tiny little percentage of your profits. You'll have made plenty anyway. Well, yes, I suppose. Well, right, where do I sign? Now, wait a minute. You're not going to settle for just regular insurance, are you? Is there another kind? Well, regular insurance will cover your natural disasters and your pirates, but what about disease? There's some nasty stuff going around, I'll tell you. And rebellions. Oh, well, I didn't thought of that. Yeah, we can add that in for another little percentage. Okay, look, let's do that now, eh? Hold on there, hold on. Have you heard these religious nuts who are waiting for the arrival of the giant turnip? Now, I'm sure a rational businessman like yourself doesn't believe a word of it. Indeed, utter nonsense. Ah, but are you sure? Better safe than sorry, I always say. Are you willing to take that risk? What if the turnip shows up before your ship comes back in, eh? Well, but... No buts. Think of your children's future. Do you want to look into their poor, hungry little eyes and tell them that they're too poor to have food? Because their dad simply refused to take out turnip insurance. Well, no, but... That's more like it now. Where do we stand on dragon attacks? Dragons? Really? No, I don't think... Ah, you'd be surprised. You know, my cousin just last month set out with some ships and even an armoured galley as they were making their way out on... Right now, let's go over that again. We've got regular disaster and pirate insurance, disease, 
insurance against acts by divine beings, including but not limited to giant vegetables, sea serpents and other monstrous creatures insurance, unpleasant mother-in-law insurance, hysterical pregnancy, sudden and permanent loss of fashion sense, severe antisocial flatulence, and accidental death from tripping and being stabbed by precariously balanced sword, dagger, or halbard. All of that for a laughable 138% of profits. Oh, mmm, 138%, you say? Yeah, terrible, innit? I'm practically giving it away. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.